So the first year I came on this trip, three years, three or two or three years ago, um, I talked about just studying the Bible in general, because that's what I do. I'm a Bible teacher. I mean, I do some other stuff too, but the main ministry of mine is I teach people how to read the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, and how to apply it to their lives. So I do it every week, and, and I enjoy doing it. So the first time I came on this trip, I talked about how to interpret the Bible, how not to interpret the Bible, and I think we looked at Genesis and looked at how, you know, starting off on the right foot when you're reading Scripture and interpreting and and how what happens in Genesis kind of sets the trajectory for the whole rest of the Bible. And then the last year, uh, who was here last year? Who was here? So what did we talk about last year? Yes. Yeah, pomegranates, uh, Song of Solomon, the sex talk. And that was fun. I did that one actually uh, to a group of young adults up in Charlotte recently. Or actually, no, it was, it was just a regular church, young and old. And it was a lot of what we talked about I've used what we had done on this talk, actually used it for them, and they, they giggled just as much and got just as uh, red-faced at some of the imagery. But I liked it because it was, it was actually talking to you guys about, hey, the Bible talks about all this stuff. It talks about so much stuff, more than just a weekly, daily devotional, more than just how to be a good person, more than um, the, the Bible doesn't just give you a set of rules. And that's what, even growing up in a, in a Christian home, even growing up in a pastor's home, it's easy to get, to imbibe, to, to, to absorb through osmosis. It's easy to just get the idea that the Bible is just a book that kind of tells you how to live a good life. And it's so not that. It, it really isn't. That's not what it is. It, it, reading it and studying it and understanding it, yes, you do learn how to not be a crappy person. Like you do learn how to not just be terrible. But the reason is not because that's what you need to do to be good and go to heaven. The reason is because Scripture gives us a narrative. It gives us a story. It gives us a world into which we are born, into which we inhabit. It's a world that's set up in the way that God wants things to go. And when they don't go that way, it goes bad. And it goes bad for us and it goes bad for the people around us. And so all of the moralizing, all of the rules and all of the do's and don'ts in the Bible, yeah, they're in there. But they're in there as part of a much, 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 much bigger story. And that's something that I'm passionate about getting people, even from, from who, what's the youngest we've got in here age-wise? Ninth grade? Eighth grade? Ninth? Fourteen. Okay, yeah. So like even from high school age, like I'm passionate about starting you off as you, as you enter into, you're in that transition time where you're transitioning into adulthood. I mean, you're, you're becoming between now and the next four years, you're pretty much going to solidify who you are at the deepest levels. I mean, like the decisions that you're making in this next couple of years, and depending, you know, some of you are on the tail end of that, some of you are just getting into it, but you really are becoming the people you're going to be for the rest of your life. Now, does that mean people can't change? No. Does that mean you're set in stone? No. What it means, though, is that the values you're absorbing, the, the life you're living, the type of person you are now is, is giving a trajectory. It's setting, it's setting the course for the way you're going to go for the rest of your life. And, and so I want you to, you know, I mean, just think about that in everything you do, but particularly too, as you're reading the Bible, as you, as you read scripture, as you understand what this thing is that we, that we hold in our hands, that's in the pews or on the seats at the church or that's on your iPhones or your iPads or in whatever format you get it, what this is, is it's just this whole library of how God has interacted with his people for thousands of years. Everything you're going through, every single problem you face, people have faced that problem for thousands of years. Now, it may have looked different, 
but it's still at the core the same thing. You know, I mean, things change, culture changes, technology changes, but human nature doesn't change. The things that we deal with are the things that they were dealing with as well, just in a different setting. So one of the things that, so first year, talked about Genesis, second year, went through Song of Solomon, which is roughly in the middle of the Bible. So this year, we're going to jump to the end of the Bible. We're going to talk about Revelation, the book of Revelation. That's my favorite book to teach in the New Testament. I love teaching the book of Revelation because it's the most misinterpreted and misunderstood book of the Bible. It's the book of the Bible that when you're, when I was about the age as you are, give or take, maybe a little bit younger, might have been eighth grade or so, I started kind of reading through the Bible and, and, you know, started to do it more than just at Sunday school. And when I was reading through Revelation, it was really weird. It was, sometimes it was really scary. Sometimes it was really cool because, you know, 13-year-old boy reading about dragons, that's always cool if you're a big geek, and um, <laughs> which I was. So it's this book that is just really fascinating, but because of that, it's super easy to completely butcher in interpretation. And the unfortunate thing is that's what so many preachers and teachers and authors and speakers and celebrities have done with the book. They have murdered it. They've completely taken away what it's actually saying at its core. And, and it's such a, it's probably, in my opinion, it is probably the most relevant book in the entire New Testament for day-to-day life. I, 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 I say that unequivocally. It's, it's probably the most relevant book for my day-to-day life than any other book in the New Testament when we read it as it was heard in the early church. And so in, in, tonight, I just want to set it up. I want to show you a couple of things about how the book works. Tomorrow night, I want to give you like the heart, the core of the book, the big overarching story where it ties everything to the whole Bible, ties it all together. And then after that, I'll send you back home and, and Mike and Jeremy and you guys can take any other questions that they have which will be a lot. But that's what I like to do, stir the pot and then leave you guys to clean up the mess. So here's some things, just right off the bat, though, here's some things about Revelation that you're not going to find in the book of Revelation. Here's what, you're not going to find anything about a rapture in the book of Revelation, not a single verse. If you can find a verse in Revelation that has anything to do with a rapture where Christians get taken out of the world to heaven, I will buy you a steak dinner. I'll buy your lift tickets. Tomorrow, if you can find that, if you can show it to me, it's not in there. Zero. There is zero in the book of Revelation about some kind of rapture. So everything you've heard and read and seen and all of that stuff, just know that wherever they're getting it from, it's not the book of Revelation. Guarantee. I've read the book. I've translated the entire book from Greek. I preach on it regularly. There's nothing in the book about a rapture. There's also the word antichrist. Not one time in the book of Revelation. Not one time. Will you ever find the word Antichrist or even the person Antichrist in the book of Revelation? In fact, there's only one book in the Bible that the word Antichrist is even used, and it's a little letter called uh, one of John's epistles. But it's just one of these things. We just assume, oh, Revelation is about the Antichrist, about the rapture. Zero for two so far. None of that. None of that's in the book. There's no battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. Sometimes you hear about like, oh, the world's going to end, the battle of Armageddon. I've been to Israel. I was there last year, or two years ago. I stood on the plains of Megiddo, looking out over the valley where supposedly all the armies of the world are going to come together. Guess what? None of that in Revelation. There are armies gathering in Revelation in the vision, and then there's no battle whatsoever. God speaks, and it's over. There's nobody in Revelation takes up arms to fight for the cause of Jesus. 
there's nothing about becoming this, this mighty army that conquers the world for the gospel. None of that. There's all of the stuff that we hear about, Apache helicopters and nuclear war and all of that stuff. None of it's in Revelation. All of that is read into the book by people that are bringing it to the book. But when you actually read it for itself, it's not in there. There's nothing about computer chips or barcodes being put on your hand or on your forehead. There's a passage about that, and it's very specific, and it has a meaning, and I'd love to share more about it in the future. But there's nothing overtly about this type of you know, new technology and one world order and all of the stuff that people get really excited about or some people get super into or some people just like to scare you. You know, I, when I grew up in Revelation, reading and hearing about Revelation, late 80s, early 90s, it was very much like, this is the book where we're going to scare you into believing in Jesus. And it, for a lot of people, it worked, but it only worked for a certain amount of time. And then when they got older and then when they realized, hey, that's not actually what the book says, then the faith was either shaken or they moved on and became more mature in their, in their faith and in their understanding. But, but the purpose of Revelation is not to tell us about the end of the world. That's not why it was written. It's not to tell you, hey, if you watch the news, if you read newspapers, if you follow you know, Twitter and what's going on in the Middle East and everything, if you read Revelation, then you'll be up on all that. That's not what it was about. That's not what it was about at all. Um, Revelation, the book itself, it tells us so many places in it, but it was written to seven churches. Like right in the first chapter, it says, write this to the seven churches in Asia Minor. This is, this is modern-day Turkey. For those of you that are geography, where's my geography whiz? You know, yeah, we were talking about this earlier. Is England an island? Uh, yes, it is. This is in Turkey, so modern-day Turkey. And uh, Greece would be right over here. Rome would be over here. Israel would be right here. So this is who these seven churches, and they actually kind of make a number seven turned on its side. But these seven churches are who the book was written to. So whatever the book of Revelation has to say to us, it had to say something to them first. And writing to these churches about nuclear war and helicopters and computer chips and all of that would have meant nothing to them at all. If Revelation was meant to tell us about just what's going to happen at the end of the world, then these guys reading it in these seven churches, what would they have gotten from that? Oh, great. We got a letter that tells us something that's going to happen in 2,000 plus years. Yay. It wouldn't have had any meaning to them. They're who it was written to. So what they were going through is primarily what the book is addressing. It's like every other book in the New Testament. When you read the book of Corinthians or Ephesians or Thessalonians, you're reading letters that were written to churches in Corinth and in Ephesus and in Thessalonica. And what you have to do is say, this is what was written to them. What are the things that it's saying to them? Now, how does that relate to what I'm going through today? It's the same thing with Revelation. It was written to these seven churches. Let me, let me give you a way to think about Revelation that helps. So back when Jeremy and I were in college, roommates together, this movie came out before you guys were born, I think. 98, right? Who was born in 98 or before? Like, like most of you weren't born. So in, in 98, 99, this movie came out called The Matrix. And at the time, it... I mean, it just blew people's minds. The effects, the, the writing, the story, everything like that. It became this cultural phenomenon. I mean, it really became for that generation what, kind of what Star Wars was for the earlier generation, but not quite as fanatic because uh, the follow-ups weren't as good as the Star Wars follow-ups and it just kind of lost steam. But anyway, the first one that came out, so who's ever seen, I mean, this is generation gap, but who's ever seen The Matrix? Like probably three of you. 
Um, so let me just tell you what's going on. In this movie, you should totally watch The Matrix. Um, in this movie, Keanu Reeves, this is Keanu Reeves. You guys recognize Keanu Reeves? He's kind of old too, so I'm dating myself. But regardless, Keanu Reeves is a guy just living his life. Every day, normally, he's a computer hacker. This is when computer hacking was kind of new and on the scene. Living his life, and he gets approached by this guy, Lawrence Fishburne, playing a character called Morpheus. And Morpheus comes to him, and basically, through their little interaction, he says, hey, Neo, Keanu Reeves' character's name is Neo. He says, Neo, everything you think you know about the world is a lie. Everything you think you see around you is a lie. And the entire world is absolutely nothing like what you think it is. And then he does this thing where he offers him. He just says, I'm holding in my hands two pills. He says, here's a blue pill. Here's a red pill. And the quote is, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed, believe whatever you want to believe. So he's giving him a choice. He says, if you take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. So he offers Neo this chance. He says, if you take this blue pill, and this is all like it's, like, it's a computer program, and it's, it's kind of geeky about how it works. But basically, it's like, if you take this blue pill, you'll just wake up, and this will all be a dream. And you'll go about your life like everybody else. But if you take this red pill, your eyes are going to be opened. And you're going to see the world as it truly is. And it will blow your mind. And I'm going to give you this choice right now. And of course, it would be a terrible movie if he took the blue pill. So he takes the red pill. And then all of a sudden, he realizes that the entire world, it's, it's, I don't even want to get into all the ins and outs of it. Just watch the movie. But his eyes get opened. And he sees that what he thought was just the normal world around him is entirely, the whole thing's a, a, a computer virtual reality. And that humanity is really this, this enslaved to this whole thing of robots that have turned them into human batteries. And it's just this dystopian, weird, depressing. Basically, the world seems like this, everyday normal. But in reality, it's this barren wasteland where humans are just basically incubated and used for their goo, their nutrients, whatever. Um, the point of it is, though, that it's, it's that choice. He says, I'm going to give you, here's the red pill. If you take this red pill, you get to see reality. And that's what he does. Well, Revelation is basically, that Revelation is the red pill of the Bible. It's the one book in the Bible that says, listen, I want to give you, I want to pull back the curtains, and I want to give you heaven's perspective on what you, the seven churches in Asia Minor, what you're going through. And it's right in the top. This is the first verse of Revelation. And the first word is the revelation. And this is the Greek word is apocalypsis. is where we get the word apocalyptic or apocalypse. But, but apocalyptic is the type of writing revelation is. It says this is the revelation of Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. That's what the book is about. The book of Revelation is revealing Jesus. That's what that word means. You know, when you think, what does revelation mean? To reveal. That word apocalypsis literally means to pull back the curtain. So if there's a car show and, and Ford or whoever's coming out with a new model, right, they get at this big rotating dais thing and there's a car and there's the stuff draped over it and there's like a spokesmodel doing the Vanna White thing. And, and, and it's this big moment. All the people from the car industry come out and they're going to write about it. And it's this big moment. And then at a certain time when the announcer announces it or whoever, whatever they do, they pull the sheet off of the car and everybody's like, whoa, and they see it. Well, that's the apocalypsis of Ford or Chevy or whatever. Um, let's go even further back. Who's seen Wizard of Oz? 
right? It's weird that more people have seen Wizard of Oz in the Matrix to me. That blows my mind. But the Wizard of Oz, right? Remember the big and scary, powerful Oz, right? He's this giant head that's floating and there's fire and he's really scary. And then remember what Toto does? Toto runs over and what does he do? Literally pulls back the curtain and you see it's this little old man turning levers and stepping on things and making this whole light show. That is the apocalypsis of Toto or of Oz. That is the revelation of the Wizard of Oz. That's when the curtain is pulled back and you see what looked to be one way was in reality something completely different. It's exactly what revelation is. That's what the whole book is about. It's the revelation that Jesus, the Messiah, it's the revelation of Jesus. It's about Jesus from beginning to end. He is the star of the show. He's who it's about. And his followers are reading it to see who is this Lord that we're serving? And is he worth it? Because that's the question that they faced. When they got revelation, when, when John wrote it, the revelation of Jesus the Messiah, which God gave him to show his servants, Christians, what must take place soon or, or swiftly. The word can be translated both ways. But revelation was written to show his servants, to show Christians in Asia Minor, hey, this is what is about to drop. This is what you're about to go through. Are you ready? Because you are about to go through some serious stuff. And the whole book is going to unfold kind of in all these different ways what's happening. But it says he, meaning Jesus, signified it or made it known. And it uses this verb that means to make known using symbols. That's what the verb that says he signified it or he made it known. That verb, it means I'm going to show you what's going on. Jesus is saying this to John. And I'm going to do it through symbols. So when you're reading Revelation, you're going to read crazy things about dragons and beasts and scorpions and locusts and armies and woman, women in the air and, and you know, drunken prostitutes and all of this stuff. It's all in there. And it's all symbolic of something. Revelation's a book of symbols. So the thing you don't do is just read it and go, oh, well, it says the dragon's going to appear, so let me be on the lookout for a dragon. It doesn't work that way. It's giving you a symbol. We're going to look at that tomorrow specifically, how that works in terms of the major players of the book. But that's the key to understanding it right off the bat is it is a book of symbols. Those symbols are very real because they point to reality, but they communicate it in a symbolic way. So when you read Revelation, you're like, I don't understand this. What's all this going on? Relax. It's okay. There's a lot of symbolism in the book. And it, it, it helps to understand and, and at least be familiar with the rest of the Bible. But it's all about Jesus signified this by sending his angel to his servant, John. John's the guy writing Revelation, who then testifies to everything that he saw concerning the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, the Messiah. And this word testified and testimony in Greek has come from the same word. And it's the word that we get the word martyr from. If you bear witness, if you testify to something, you are a martyr in Greek. That's what the word originally meant. You give testimony. I saw this. This is my experience. You were a martyr. In the first century, when Christians started getting persecuted, testifying to Jesus usually meant imprisonment, torture, or death. So the word for witness, by default, became the word martyr. Someone who gives their life for the cause. Because if you confess Jesus, in a lot of the instances, especially when this book was being written, you confess Jesus as your Savior, you're done. So Revelation was written to show these Christians, hey, you're about to go through some of the worst persecution that the church has ever seen. 
you need to know what you're in for. And you need to know, are you serious about this or are you just playing around? If you're just playing around, if you just like the Jesus thing, get off the train because it's about to get really rough. This is the message that Revelation was speaking to him. And the thing is that that's been the message in every generation of church history. You know, we look around, we're like, we're on a retreat. We're a church group. We've got money. We've, we've got a room. We've got a nice, we've got a hot tub. We're living it up. We just went skiing. We're doing, we're, we're first world problems, right? This is who we are. At the same time, right now, your and my brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the world are having their heads chopped off on Mediterranean beaches. Right now, they're having their monasteries that are 1,600 years being blown up by ISIS right now because they're Christians. They're having the Arabic letter for Nun, the letter N, which stands for Nazarite or the Nazarene, spray-painted on their house to let the roving murder squads know this is a Christian house. You can kill them. That's happening right now. Every generation in the church, there have been people who have been giving their life for the gospel. Not everywhere at all at once. But somewhere in the body of Christ, Christians are literally dying for what we say we believe. So Revelation, what it does is it tells Christians, hey, here's, here's what it means to follow Jesus. And if, you, if you're on board with it, then the rewards are going to far exceed the dangers. But if you're not on board with it, know that because what's coming is going to be rough. Revelation, the way the book works is, and we won't even get into this, but just as you're reading in the future, as you study the Bible, just tuck this away, if nothing else, if you're just bored and want to go to bed, just tuck this away and come back to it in five years when somebody asks you. But the whole book goes in this cycle. It gives these cycles of visions. Revelation starts here, on, and it's like things are going on on earth, things are going on in heaven. And Revelation starts on earth, and then soon John is taken up into heaven, and he sees things from a heavenly perspective. And then it comes back down to earth. And then things go happen on earth. And then he's taken back up and he sees things from heaven's perspective. And then back down to earth for some more stuff. And it does this seven times. Seven times he gets these vignettes of what's going on on earth, what's going on in heaven. And they're, 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 they're majorly contrasting. And there's a reason for it. Revelation turns the world upside down. The book of Revelation turns the world upside down in the same way that in the Matrix, when Neo took the red pill, it turned his world upside down. Same way when Toto pulled back the curtain, it turned the Wizard of Oz completely upside down. That's what Revelation does. So John's writing. He's writing to these churches. John, to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia. That's what would be today Turkey. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. That's the Code word, or not code word, but it's a symbol for Jesus, but it has all these echoes of Greco-Roman theology, and there's so much in this. Don't even want to get into it. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, that is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. He's referred to as the seven spirits of God in Zechariah and in the Revelation. And again, more than we can get into tonight. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, this term is the term martyr, the original witness, the original one who bore the testimony and gave his life for it, Jesus from the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. The first thing that Revelation tells people is, this is who's talking to you. The ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, the reason that's so mind-boggling, see, we've grown up with the idea of Jesus exalted. You know, we've seen the cathedrals. We've seen the stained glass. 
We've seen the episodes of South Park. We've seen whatever it is, depictions of Jesus, where he's this godly thing. This, this, you know, he's Jesus. Of course he's godly. Of course he's divine. In the world of Revelation, when this was being written, he was just another Jewish peasant who got nailed to a tree. He was one among hundreds of Jewish peasants who Roman authorities nailed to a tree. To say that he's the ruler over the kings of the earth was mind-blowing in the first century. Because the guy who was the ruler over the kings of the earth was Caesar. The guy who ruled all of this and all of the rest of the known world was Caesar. Caesar was the king of kings. He was the lord of lords. Coins in the Roman Empire had pictures of Caesar's head on it, and it said, Lord and Savior. Caesar was Lord and Savior. Caesar was Lord. In fact, that was one of the things that that was a a bedrock of being a Roman citizen. You had to confess, Caesar is Lord. So for the Christians to confess, Jesus is Lord, which was one of the earliest Christian creeds, that in and of itself could be a death sentence. Because if you said Jesus is Lord, by default you were saying Caesar is not. And that carried a stiff penalty in the world of the first century. But yet that's what the early Christians believed. See, the Roman Empire, this is when when Revelation was written in the heart of the empire, the Roman Empire depicted itself as the greatest thing that had ever graced the stage of the world. Rome was responsible for everything. They had this thing, some of you may have learned in history, if not, you will, called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, where Rome would go into an area, bulldoze their army, take over their rulers, and then they would bring peace and stability and order. They would build roads. They would build public waterworks, aqueducts that people could get their plumbing from, from a long distance away. They would build stadiums where people could do like games, like sporting events or plays or drama or any of this kind of stuff. Rome would come in and they would bring civilization. They would bring order and they would bring peace. They were a global force for good long before the U.S. Navy adopted that slogan. That's what Rome depicted itself as. That's what Rome saw itself as. The problem was that Rome was ruled by this guy, Caesar, and his descendants or his successors. And the Caesars eventually became seen by the people as gods on earth. So when this Caesar died, they said he didn't die. Well, he died in earthly, but he ascended into heaven. And actually that star up there, that's him. And all of the other Caesars, when they die, they ascended and that's them in the heavens looking over us. Because they are the son of the gods. They are Caesar. And then a Caesar, a rule, Caesar just means king, by the way. Then a Caesar came on the scene, and he was crazy. I mean, literally, he was crazy. And he started demanding, while he was alive, that people worship him as God. His name was Nero, and he was nuts. And while he was alive, people had to refer to him or had to worship him. This caused problems for Christians. Because Christians were just Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And Jews, from the very beginning, did not worship anybody but God himself. So Christians didn't worship anybody but God himself. And in Christians, that God was revealed in Jesus Christ and had the whole Trinity thing going. But it was still the one God that they worshipped. So when Rome said, hey, we got a problem here. You worship Caesar. And they said, well, we can't. We worship Jesus. Well, you need to choose because a good citizen of this empire is going to be nice and patriotic and they're going to want the peace of Rome and they're going to want the gods to bless us. So you better worship the emperor. And the Christians said, we can't do that. And so Christians became under Nero, this, this, this persecution broke out. It wasn't huge widespread, but it was pretty severe, especially in Rome. 
They would take Christians. So Nero, he would throw these lavish outdoor banquets on the palace grounds, and they needed light for the banquets at night. So they would take Christians, and they would coat them in tar, tie them to poles, and light them on fire. And that was the banquet lighting for his barbecues. Nero would do this. During the games, during the gladiator games and the stuff in the Colosseum, halftime entertainment, right, between matches, uh, Christians, families sometimes, would, would be sewn inside uh, animal skins and then thrown into the Colosseum. And then they would let loose lions and tigers and all those kind of predatory animals to attack them, to kill them. And that was, that was entertainment in the first century. This, this, is, this is what Christians went through. Like our spiritual forefathers and foremothers went through this all because they would not say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord, and they paid with their lives. It happened a lot, so then it died down. Next couple of Caesars, I mean, they, were, eh, they weren't great, but they weren't awful like Nero. I mean, Nero set the bar in terms of evil. And then about the time Revelation was written, about 90 AD, a new emperor came on the scene, and he too wanted to be worshipped while he was alive as a god. His name was Domitian. And Domitian did the things that Caesar did, but to the nth degree. I mean, the persecution under Domitian was like what Caesar, I mean, what Nero did, but raised to another level. So by the time Revelation was written, it was right when this was about to happen, and the churches were about to go through severe persecution. And the way you didn't get persecuted as a Christian was you capitulated. You, 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 um, you adopted the culture. And you said, yeah, I worship Jesus, but yes, I'll worship Caesar on the side as well. You compromised. And if you compromised, you get left alone, mostly. So Christians were faced with two options in the first century. You can either go to your death, possibly, or you could just be exiled or imprisoned or whatever, but none of it was good. Or you can compromise and live an easy life but compromise your faith in Jesus. Those were kind of the choices that Christians were given. So Revelation was written to show Christians in the first century, hey, here's what's on the line. Here's what's at stake. The empire depicts itself this way. Roman propaganda would put any of our current modern cable news to shame. Rome was great at pumping up how awesome Rome was. You know, Rome presented itself as embodied by the goddess Roma, that's kind of where Rome comes from. Roma was the goddess, the embodiment of Rome. And she was this wise, noble goddess. And that was what the people would like. That was, you know, like we have the, the eagle or Uncle Sam. Like Rome had their own symbols as well. And one was Roma, the goddess, you know, just this, this, this astute, astute, like very elegant, wise goddess. And in Revelation, that figure itself gets turned on its head and presented as completely different. See, Revelation, this is how the empire would depict itself, but Revelation depicts the empire in much different terms. So while Rome saw itself as the city on a hill, or it's technically the city on seven hills, Revelation, in the, in the, in the symbolism of Revelation, it's, it's this seven-headed monster. While the goddess Roma was the symbol of wisdom and virtue and beauty and elegance and peace and everything cultured in Revelation, when John sees the vision of Rome for who it truly is, it's this drunken, murderous prostitute riding on this beast, devouring God's people. In Rome, depicted itself as the savior of the world, in Revelation's image, Rome is the destroyer of the world. So Revelation takes everything and it turns it on its head. And in the Roman view, 
Jesus was just another would-be Messiah who was executed like all the others who died in a backwater province known as Judea, what we would call Israel, as nothing. In Revelation, he's the king of kings and the ruler of the universe. In Rome's eyes and in the eyes of empire, even today, you conquer by conquering. You conquer by destroying you beat evil by beating it physically, by, by using force, by, by using might, by doing all. That's how you win. You get ahead by destroying your opposition. In Revelation, the people who are depicted as conquering, the people who are depicted as victorious, the people who are depicted as overcoming, the people who are depicted as God's army, are those who are willing to give their lives for the gospel. They're depicted as the martyrs. They're depicted as the faithful saints. They're not waving swords. They're waving palm branches. They're not wearing armor. They're wearing white robes, which symbolize the pureness of their actions. They are, they are, that is who, because they follow their master, and their master is Jesus. And Jesus conquers. Jesus wins. Jesus beats Satan by being beaten by him physically. The cross, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, that wasn't God's plan B. That was the plan from the very beginning. That Jesus took all of the powers of evil, took all of the brunt of evil, took all of the curse of evil on himself and let Satan win in the eyes of the world only then to go through that death, through that shame, through that humiliation, through all of that, out the other side into victory rising up and becoming the ruler of all the nations, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who you sing your worship songs to. In the eyes of Revelation, that's who we serve. And Caesar, that paints himself as this wonderful savior of the world, he's a petty little horn that pops up among a bunch of horns and has a loud mouth, and he's going to get crushed. This is how Revelation works. It takes the image of the empire and it flips it on its head. Let me show you an example. When John in verse 9 of chapter 1, he starts his letter off, he says, I, John, your brother and your companion in the tribulation, and it uses this word, flipse, it's in Greek, it's a fun word to say, flipse, and it means suffering, persecution, tribulation. When John introduces himself, he says, I, John, your brother or your companion or your fellow sufferer, your companion in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's how he starts his letter. That's how Revelation starts. He says, hey, I'm going to write to you, and I'm your fellow servant. I'm going through this thing with you. In fact, I'm exiled on this island called Patmos in the middle of the ocean, off the shore. I can see the mainland, but I can't get there. I'm exiled here because of my testimony, because I held to the testimony of Jesus I'm on this island, but Jesus has given me a message. I've seen the risen Lord, and he wants to communicate something to you because you are about to go through some of this stuff too. And he says, I, your companion, in thee. And the first thing he says that introduces what it means to be in Jesus, tribulation, suffering. That's what Christians were familiar with then. It's what many, 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 many Christians are familiar with now. I go to India every year to teach pastors in India. These are village pastors. Some of their churches are buildings that hold about 100 people. Some of their churches are a tree where people come and sit 
and they talk to them under the tree. That's their church. These are village pastors, hundreds of them. Me, my senior pastor, usually another staff member, we go over there and we spend a week with them, teaching them, teaching them Bible interpretation and learning from them, you know, hearing their stories. And they've been through it. We go to a place called Candomal. It's in the region. It's in the state of Odisha, India. It's on kind of the east coast, but it's up in the mountains. And in Candomal, around 2006, 2007, massive anti-Christian persecution broke out. There were radicals, there were nationalists among them who, who were, you know, were Indian nationalists, Hindus, and they see Christians as remnants of the British rule. They see Christians as troublemakers. They see Christians as people that they want out. So there was this massive outbreak of persecution. It took place when, when a Hindu guru was killed by another guy that had nothing to do with Christians, but it got blamed on Christians. And that was enough for there to be this kind of mob mentality. 50,000 Christians had their homes destroyed, their churches burned, and some of them even were killed. My friend, my friend, I actually, I have video on my laptop. I'll show you him telling his testimony. He said he watched, he, he had to hide as people rampaging through. And some of the, the, their neighbors who weren't Christians, Hindu neighbors, would kind of hide them, protect them. And some of that happened as well. But um, he talks about watching, seeing his, I believe it was his cousin, it might have been his nephew, uh, hacked to death. Like hacked to death in front of him. And then his body thrown into the fire and burned. Like, he watched this, right? If you think you've seen something bad, you have not compared to that. And others, my friend, he was in America at the time, and his wife and his kids were there in their, in their village. And the, 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 the people came through marauding. They had to go literally flee into the jungle for three weeks. Like, they had to go into the jungle. And this is India. They're tigers. They're, like, big monkeys. Like, not cute monkeys, like Curious George, but, like, tear-your-face-off monkeys. <laughs> Um, all kinds of stuff. They had to go in the jungle for three uh, weeks because their village had been destroyed. Now, I've been to that village. I stayed at his house. The Christians came back. They kept preaching the gospel, and the faith spread. You go to that village now, and, and there's Christians. The guy who showed me, he's like, yeah, that's a Christian house. That's a Christian house. That's a Christian house. That's a Christian house. All because the people who went through that persecution, they stayed. They came back. They kept preaching the gospel. In the face of this persecution, they didn't give in. They didn't compromise. And now in that region, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. But I say all that to say that that's going on right now, not just in first century, not just in the Roman Empire, but right now in a supposedly free nation where religious freedom is protected like India. That happened then. It happens now. Nothing saying that it couldn't happen to us someday. And we kind of take for granted the kind of nation that we live in. And, you know, we're Christian majority, so we've got it okay. We're never promised tomorrow. So Revelation is written. It's, it's saying, basically, look, if you're in Jesus, if you claim to be in Jesus, there's three things that that's going to require. There's three things that being in Jesus entails. So if you're not ready for these three things, then you're not ready to say you're a Christian. First, let's say, tribulation. That's going to happen if you're a follower of Jesus. It's going to happen. People will not always like you if you're a follower of Jesus. Yes, Jesus was the friend of sinners. Yes, he had, a, he had a great reputation among the riffraff and among the downtrodden and even among some of the religious leaders, but he was also nailed to a cross. So if that happened to him, that could happen to us. And we just have to accept that as Christians. That could be our faith. But the second thing about being a Christian, being in Jesus, means you are in a kingdom. Now, kingdoms require what? king. And the king of this kingdom, Jesus, happens to be the king of the universe. Not Caesar, not the king of Rome, 
but the king of all kings. That's who Revelation unveils. That's what Revelation reveals. It's the opposite of the Wizard of Oz. In the Wizard of Oz, it looks impressive, uh, the great and powerful Oz, but behold, it's just this little old guy with a weird mustache. In, I think he had a mustache. In Revelation, it's the exact opposite. They think, oh, it's this, this nobody carpenter from Judea, Nazareth, not even a city that anybody knows about, and he was executed like everybody else under Pontius Pilate, blah, blah, blah. In Revelation, he is the exalted center of the throne in the center of heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 completely turns it on its head. So being in Jesus means being in the kingdom. And if we're in the kingdom, then we're on the side of the king. So if we're on the side of the true king, then the pretender kings, like Caesar, like any of the emperors throughout history, like even leaders today that paint themselves as the new Messiah, whatever it is, they're not the real king. So Revelation's written to give that hope and to give that inspiration of, hey, guys, you're on the winning team. As bad as things are going to get, remember, you're on the winning team. And there's nothing that's going to be so bad that when God finally does act and does bring everything right, that it won't completely pay for itself a million times over. Revelation is written to give people, this is the irony, Revelation was written to give the first century Christians two things, clarity, which is irony because nobody looks at Revelation today and goes, oh, that's clear. It's the opposite. It's weird. It's scary. But for the first century Christians who knew the language, who knew the symbolism, and who were going through the stuff, it made things clear to them. And they realized this is what we're part of. This is what we're fighting for. This is what we're willing to go to our deaths for. And it also was written to give them encouragement. It was written to give them hope. Revelation, that's the other irony. Revelation is the most hopeful book in the New Testament. It is the most encouraging book in the New Testament. All because it presents who we are and who Jesus is through the eyes of heaven. And that's the only perspective that matters. The last thing is patient endurance. Revelation calls for, it tells Christians, look, you need to have patient endurance, steadfast endurance. You need to, this is, this timetable is going to be longer than your life. Things are going on in the world that are bigger than your day. And be ready for that and be ready to endure as long as it takes. So from the get go, Christians have been called to be ready to endure. Because we've never known when's Jesus going to come back. When's he going to come back and fully implement his rule that's already begun at his ascension into heaven? When's he going to come back and and consummate everything? When's it going to be done? And Revelation was written to give Christians the encouragement that they need to live in, in between that time from when victory was proclaimed until when victory is consummated and completed. And that window, that's when we live in. We'll talk tomorrow night about what it looks like during that and why things get so awful at times. But a great summary of the overall message of the whole book of Revelation is found right in chapter 2. It's this little, Jesus gives seven words or seven letters to these seven churches, one for each. And in this one that he writes to this church of Smyrna, it's the only church in the all seven that he has nothing but good things to say about them. Every other church, he's had some good things about him, and then he has some rebukes or some discipline, except for Smyrna. Nothing but praise for Smyrna. And in that, he tells them, verse chapter 2, verse 10, the third part of it, he says, remain faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown that is life itself. I will give you the most important thing. I will give you the thing that is every, by which everything else pales in comparison. If you remain faithful to me, 
even to the point of death. It's easy to remain faithful to Jesus when things are good. It's easy to remain faithful to Jesus in a culture where it's okay to be faithful to Jesus. It's easy to be a Christian in the Bible Belt. Everybody's a Christian by default. It's hard to be a Christian in Saudi Arabia where that becomes a death sentence. There's, there, Jesus is saying in Revelation, he's telling his church, look, remain faithful no matter what, because you're going to face two things. You're going to face persecution, which is going to want to get you to crack, to break, and to give up your faith for the sake of your comfort, or you're going to face temptation. You're going to face a temptation from a culture that says, just compromise, do the Jesus thing Sunday, and then be a normal person every other day of the week. That's what it's going to ask of its people. And what Revelation has written is to say, do not give in because it is so much bigger than you imagine. I'm going to give one just final example to kind of show you how the book works in these early chapters, just so you can see and get a visual from what I'm talking about. But in chapter three, so Revelation chapter three, this is Jesus has given a message to give to these seven churches and he gave them on a circuit. So like Patmos is down here off the coast. And the first letter is to go here, then to here, then up to here. Then it would travel around. It would make its way all the way to this last church called Laodicea. So that was the route, and that's the way the churches are written to. So each church, he has something to say to Ephesus, something to say to Smyrna, something to say to Pergamon. He has a message for each church. And then the last one, Laodicea, he has a message for them. Now, Laodicea, this place, modern Turkey, it's not still there anymore. It's just a mound of dirt. But... Laodicea in the ancient world was known for a couple of things. Laodicea was a city that was incredibly wealthy. Laodicea had gold, lots of it, because they were on a trade route. People would come through, they would pass, they would do business with them. It was a commerce center. Laodicea was known for their textiles. They made the finest garments. They had a certain type of dye that they could make these really beautifully dyed. We take for granted like the colors that our garments are available in today. But this is back in the ancient world where to get dye, to dye something, you had to grind up flowers or crush up snails or do something to make it the different colors that we... Laodicea was known for their amazing textiles, their beautiful garments. They were known for gold. They were known for their garments. Laodicea, they had discovered in Laodicea this ointment, like salve that you could put on your eyes that would actually cure a number of types of eye ailments. Now, it wouldn't make you see if you were blind, but a number of things of, of, of eye problems, they had a reputation. If you had trouble with seeing, if you had eye problems, you go to Laodicea, you get their salve, you get that ointment, you put it on your eyes, you get treated. These are the things that made Laodicea a rich city. They were so rich that before Revelation was written, a couple of decades, an earthquake had leveled the city. And this whole region was just, you know, earthquake. So everything is like in shambles. So Rome, Rome is like way over there. Rome sends word to all these cities and the empire says, hey, we'll send funds to rebuild the city. Laodicea was one of the only cities that said, we're good, we got this. We got enough money, we'll rebuild. And they did. They rebuilt their entire city because they had enough. They, they, they didn't need anything from anybody. They were good. They were wealthy. They had it going on. And there was a church at Laodicea. And the Christians in the church at Laodicea were actually okay with their culture. They were, they were no problems there from the Christians. So then Jesus writes to them. There's one thing. I almost forgot. There's one thing Laodicea didn't have. So Laodicea is here. 
There's a little town to the north called Hierapolis, a little town to the east called Colossae. You would know this from the book of Colossians. Laodicea, the one thing it didn't have was its own water supply. It didn't have a river. It didn't have any springs. It wasn't at the base of a mountain. They didn't have their own water. Now, when you're rich and you don't have water, you pay someone and they bring you water. And that's what Laodicea did. They actually built aqueducts, like like ancient pipe system, and they would get their water from Hierapolis and from Colossae. So from Colossae, here's Colossae, modern-day Colossae. It was at the base of this mountain called Mount Cadmus. And this whole area is the Lycus River Valley. All of the runoff, all of the meltwater, because this mountain is snow-capped, all of the meltwater would come down and see all these trees. It's no coincidence that there are all these trees growing. There are streams and tributaries that run all through your Colossae head, cold, fresh water all the time. So Laodicea, what do you do? Build an aqueduct, get that cold water pumped in from Colossae. And then just to the north, Hierapolis, this is from Hierapolis now, it's still known. You can go vacation here if you go to Turkey. It has this mountain, and cascading down are these hot springs where water is just coming, and it's forming these deposits. And people today, to this day, come from all over the world to bathe in the hot springs at Hierapolis because supposedly it's soothing, it's good for your health. It's, I mean, who wouldn't want to sit? It's like a hot tub, a whole mountain of hot tubs. And you can just go hang out there. This is a real thing. So Laodicea, they want hot water, pipe it in from Hierapolis. So they were good. They had it both. The only problem was this was before refrigeration. This was before insulation, before electricity. So when you got water piped in, and these are miles away, you know, six, seven, eight dozen miles. If you got water coming in in a stone ditch, which was what an aqueduct is, by the time it leaves Colossae, it's ice cold. Gets to Laodicea, it's, it's lukewarm. It's room temperature. The hot water that left Hierapolis, by the time it gets to Laodicea, it's not hot anymore. It's lukewarm. All of the water at Laodicea was just lukewarm. It wasn't cold, it wasn't hot. And because it had come in in these aqueducts, these raised ditches, it had picked up all the minerals, all the dead animals, all of the dirt, all of the muck, everything that had come along the way, it had picked it up as well. So the water in Laodicea was actually pretty terrible. If you weren't from there, you don't drink the water in Laodicea. It's like today, if you go to Mexico or South America, and our systems aren't used to that water, so if you drink it, you're going to get sick. So they tell you, drink bottled water only. Jeremy and I went to Honduras together, actually, and a number of the people on the trip didn't heed that warning. That was an interesting plane ride home. Uh, But drinking the water from a country that has all the stuff in it, it's not good. It'll make you sick. And so people that would drink water from Laodicea many times would get sick and would literally throw up. I mean, literally, they would vomit because of the water at Laodicea. So all of that, all of that in the background, listen to what Jesus says to the Christians at Laodicea. He says to them, verse 15, chapter 3, I know your words. Excuse me, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, your NIV says spit, but that's because they're polite. It's the word for vomit. Jesus is saying, he just compared them to their water supply. He just said, you're like your water. You're not cold. Now, when I was coming up, this was always taught as lukewarm means you're just kind of sort of a Christian. Cold means you're spiritually dead, and hot means you're on fire for Jesus. So you'd rather be completely spiritually dead than lukewarm. That's not what Revelation's saying. 
That's not how the first readers would have heard it. They would have heard it as, well, hot water is good for something because it's soothing, it's relaxing. Cold water is good for something. It's refreshing, it's invigorating, but lukewarm water is not good for anything. And what Jesus is saying is the church of Laodicea, church, you're just like your water. And then he goes on to tell them why. He says, verse 17, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus picks out every one of these symbols that this city was prides itself on and the Christians there would have known all about. And he says, you're settling. You're settling for a sham. The real deal is found in me. The real garments, the real gold, the real salve that helps you really see all of that stuff that your culture prides itself on, it's really found in me. So come to me. Come back to me. He's, remember, he's saying this to Christians. He's saying this to church in Laodicea. He's not saying this to the culture there. He's talking to the Christians. And then he says, those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. But he who has near to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, listen. So Jesus, talking to Christians, Telling Christians, I'm knocking. I'm knocking on your door. I'm knocking on the door of your church. Let me in. They were so comfortable. They were so complacent. They had it great. Their city was great. Everything was great. And Jesus said, no, the only thing, the only, the only thing that you have in common with your city spiritually is both make me want to throw up. Jesus said that. <laughs> like, we don't think about Jesus saying that to people, much less to Christians, much less to a church. But that's what he says to Laodicea. It's very harsh. Laodicea, you make me want to vomit. Ooh, that stings. But then he says, listen, I can say that because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't discipline you. I wouldn't rebuke you. I wouldn't even write this letter to you if I didn't care about you. I want you to open the door. I want to come in and I want to have a meal with you. I want to be in your presence. You've got to let me in. You can't keep playing this. I'm okay. You're okay. We don't need anything. We're good. Let me in. So he writes that to Christians. This is how, I use the example, this is how Revelation turns everything upside down. In the eyes of, see, in the eyes of the culture, Laodicea had it great. They had everything. They would have been maybe a mega church. You know, they would have been doing well. Through the eyes of heaven, they made Jesus sick. Through the eyes of the world, Rome was it. Caesar was king. You bow to him, everything's good. Through the eyes of heaven, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is Lord. Worshiping the Messiah, the crucified Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, that is the king of the universe. And so Revelation holds out, that it's, it's basically, here's the red pill, here's the blue pill. Decide which one you want to take. Take a blue pill, live your life. Live your life, see the world as it is, 
buy into all the lies, see the culture, see what it puts before you. This is what it means to make it. This is what it means to be popular. This is what it means to be wealthy. This is what it means to live the life. Take the blue pill, do that, and go to your grave completely deluded. Or you take the red pill. Look through the eyes of Revelation. Look at things through the eyes of heaven. See your world. See your school. See your family. See your friends through the eyes of Jesus where everything is turned upside down. And you start to see what you're truly part of. You're part of a kingdom. You're part of a redeemed people. When you face trouble, you say, this is part of it. I can get through this. Why? Because Jesus got through it. That's what Revelation offers. He offers it to Christians in all the churches throughout history because if it didn't mean this to them, then it doesn't have much to say to us today. So what I want to challenge you with, and tomorrow I'll show you one example of how the symbolism in it works in terms of the main story of Jesus and who he is and how it ties everything up in the whole Bible. But it's more than anything, I just want you to, I just want you to know that there's something out there. I just want you to know that there's a book like Revelation in your Bible and not to buy into whatever you hear fads or see on TV or hear somebody preaching about or, or read a book about or whatever without you having gone through and actually said, what does this say? What is this book saying? And, and, and when you come to parts that are confusing, getting help, asking Mike, asking Jeremy, asking somebody, hey, help me through this because I don't understand this part. That's all. That's part of the journey. That's, I mean, I, I'm, I do it for a living and I still have questions about the book. So it's a lifelong process. But just beginning, just not going through life as a mouth-breathing, whatever comes my way, oh, that's what it is, you know, just not doing that. But actually seeing things through the eyes of heaven, realizing, whoa, whoa, this is really bigger than I thought it was. Like, like this actually matters eternally. This actually matters. So as your thing is, you know, you're, you're going to bed tonight, as you're sitting on the lift tomorrow, as you're driving home in the van or whatever, um, you know, ask yourself, where am I on the way of the sea scale? You know, how much do I make Jesus want to vomit? Like, <laughs> am I willing to open the door and let him in to my midst? Like, do I want him in or do I think, no, I got this, Jesus. You stay in my devotional, you stay in my Sunday school, you stay in my youth group worship time, and the rest of the time is me time. That's the kind of thing that makes Jesus sick. But what doesn't is when you say, Jesus, I'm a mess, I'm a wreck, I've done a lot of junk, and I need you. That's when he wants to come in. That's when the door gets open. That's when you share the meal together, and that's what he wants from the beginning. So 